this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast, except we take a run. <laughs> this is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Okay, well, you go first, because I haven't thought of what astonishes me yet. Okay, well, uh, what I'm thinking about and what's astonishing me are the same thing today. But before I get into that, I have to say this is the first time we've been on your back porch in a long time. It is a lovely spring day in North Carolina. Lots of pollen. But lots aside of, from that, it is a Lots of day. birds. You'll hear the birds. Lots of birds yeah. singing, serenading us. Well, I, once again, I C- want come to... Come for the theology, <laughs> stay for the bird song. <laughs> once again, I want to highlight um, our prayer summit that we actually had last Saturday. Really good, well attended. People were highly engaged. Um, we began with a time of worship. The whole point was to listen for what God was saying about uh, the next stage of our ministry, our life together as a congregation. We've been listening during the pandemic. Say, lead us, guide us. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, some folks we heard some folks saying, "Hey, God's trying to tell us something," and so we uh, pressed pause and said, "Okay, well, if God is speaking, let's listen." And so we. We heard some things during the pandemic in terms of direction, and so uh, we felt it was time to do that again. And instead of simply calling our leadership team to prayer, we called the whole congregation to a, a morning of prayer, actually about three hours. And in this prayer summit, we gathered in our fellowship center around tables, uh, small groups, uh, three, max four to a table. And we went through various areas of the life of the church, and people prayed together as a small group for about 15 minutes. And as they heard from the Spirit, there were index cards at the center of the table. They could write what they heard and uh, place them in a basket um, in the center of the table. We were praying about worship, our worship life. And uh, right after that, I called for a 10-minute break because we'd been praying for about an hour or so and uh, immediately when I called for that break a table in the back asked me to go back there back to their table and they were so excited that in their time of praying together they sensed the spirit speaking to them the same word And they were so excited about that that they wanted to share it with me. And they said, Pastor, the the, the Spirit spoke to us, and the Spirit spoke one word as we were praying about worship. Oh, yeah, what was that word? And they said it was the word released. Hmm. And, of course, I wanted to launch in and and say some things about it, but I, (laughs) I held back long enough to ask a clarifying question. Well, what do you think the Lord sang? And, um, you know, they said things like, you know, we, we feel that we're not bringing our full selves to worship, that we are hmm. holding back. And, and they owned it. I, I do this. I know I do this. And they said, we, we feel like that there's, there's something that's just holding us back. And what really astonished them and me was that one of them said, I thought I was the only person in the church who felt that way. And then another one said, I thought I was the only person. Mm -hmm. A third one said, I thought I was the only person. And so they were just amazed that they, one, all heard the same word from the Spirit, released. 
and that they were all feeling the same thing. And these are three very different people, um, all women. One is very new to our community, probably uh, just three or four months. The other two are historic members, but one is what we would label a loud, expressive person, and the other is we would call a, a quiet a person. Mm-hmm. But they were all saying, we feel like we're holding back. And the first thing that came to my mind was that scripture that uh, says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, Because I know that in the natural, lions seek to isolate their prey. And so the fact that they were all feeling this kind of suffering and silence suggested to me, okay, this, this is the work of the enemy. And the and the reality, the fact that you guys have named this out loud, have said this to each other, that is um, that is a powerful pushback against mm-hmm. the work of the enemy in our community and in your life. And uh, we talked for a little while, and our, our break was short, so we really didn't go very deep. And so we ended the conversation because it was almost time for me to begin the prayer summit again, our prayer time again. But days later... I've been thinking about that word release. I mean, I cannot let it go. I've just been thinking about it and thinking about it. And it has stuck with me, I think, for two reasons. Number one, when I get honest, I realize that I struggle with the same thing. Mm -hmm. That even though the congregation experiences me as, um, you know, loud, expressive in worship, I pick up the tambourine, I play it, there is a part of me that's not fully embodying um, the worship that I feel deep down inside. And that's really, it's not a style thing. Um, But I do... I do sense my own holding back. And the other thing I've been thinking about is that this is bigger than worship. It's, it's, it's bigger than being expressive in worship or having a certain mm-hmm. kind of worship style. This is about the congregation feeling authorized to do spiritual things like you are authorized to pray you're authorized to ask god for healing you're we we have in our congregation i know it's probably true for many other congregations either intentionally or unintentionally maybe a little bit of both reduce the congregation to consumers consumers and receivers yes and so um in this next season, one of the things I'm, I'm really going to lean into is helping them to see that they are they are authorized. They don't need mm. anybody's permission to do the things that Jesus is telling them to do. They are not simply the recipients of my ministry. They are agents of ministry. Mm-hmm. They are people empowered by the Spirit to do kingdom work. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so interesting— um, that idea of people feeling like they're the only one in the congregation. And I think that is, um, is like, that's not, that is not an isolated, like I think a lot of times 
one of the ways that we disconnect from others in our community is that we assume either from a place of pride or from a place of inferiority that we're the only one. So if I'm struggling, it's just me. Or if I understand something as as really important, that's just me. And so, you know, creating a space where we can be in a in a loving way and in a humble way, but we can show up and be our whole selves. And then we'll discover like, oh, you know, if I am perceiving something correctly from the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to be the only person perceiving it. Um, and if I'm struggling, if there's a problem that I'm perceiving and it's of the Lord, I'm not going to be the only one perceiving it. And I think we do just have this idea because our journey with Jesus and our concept of life in Christ is so individualized in our American culture that we just don't expect people. And and we're almost even a little offended at the idea that people would be on the same journey that we are on. And so we don't look for that confirmation. And um, I think that, you know, we're just really suspicious of that. And so it's really just interesting um, to sort of norm for people that like, hey, if if what we believe is that the Spirit is drawing particular people into this particular body of Christ for a reason, then we're we're here for a reason. And everyone here has the capacity to see and perceive and participate in the unique mission of this congregation. And we have to start seeing that um so and i just love i mean i i think it's such deep important transformative work to be saying to people you are not you don't need a mediator i mean like the mediator you need is christ and the spirit and what you have in the church is not a mediator but a community and like i think this is the problem we've talked before about sort of the ways that our understanding of pastoring has been professionalized in order, I think, in our denomination to make people see that we are respectable or our institutions are respectable, that we have sort of positioned ourselves to be like the spiritual version of a therapist or a professor or a performer, <laughs> instead of saying like, no, we are equippers. And the people who are in our sphere of influence, I mean, these people are disciples who have a ministry that is no less um, and and no more, but no more and no less real and vital than our own. And I do really, you know, like I feel like we as pastors inside our communities, like we have the easier call, right? I mean, I really think that once we grasp that all of us are called to bring our whole selves and surrender our whole selves and our whole lives, like we're all in full-time ministry, regardless of where we we quote work regardless of whether we draw a salary for that work like our whole lives are living sacrifices and ministries and places of um you know indwelling in the kingdom of god and being a bridge for other people that's all of us and so people who get to do that within the context of the church like we drew the easy job and it's folks who are trying to live that out in you know, in other contexts and other spaces, um, who, who have the, the much more difficult and I would say more important part, um, that's more important because the, the church is infectious and contagious and that doesn't happen in our congregations. That happens as people go out or called out like the church sent out the ecclesia. Yeah. And there's a level of comfort 
that comes with living with the lie of clergy being the professional professionals who super apostles yes yeah who simply dispense ministry to the congregation and so it lets the congregation off the hook of being agents of ministry and it puts clergy up on this false pedestal of being you know kind of holy spirit junior in the midst of right. the community and and as much as we hate that role we also like it i yes. mean and yep. i just think and that's, that's important to be at. honest mm-hmm. about that that um and i remember i mean our friend who i talk about a lot a lot lisa coons was like you know kate in a healthy church there will be many people in your community who are more spiritual mature than you are yeah. like you should understand that and embrace that um that the pastor is not the most spiritually mature person in the congregation and that's not to condone condone spiritual immaturity it's just to say this is not a hierarchical organization um and so, yeah, I, I think that's just really, that's really beautiful. And I know that, um, you know, that's so counterintuitive, I think, to us formed in the mainline world to say, like, I'm going to devote all of this, this time and centering in, in calling people to prayer. And we are just so um, formed more by American culture of like, okay, but like, what's the point of that? And what's that going to produce? And to say, like, no, our, our first job is to be a spiritual community. And we can't be a spiritual community without devoting significant time to cultivating spiritual, a relationship with the Holy Spirit and to cultivate, you know, postures of listening and surrender. And that makes us very uncomfortable as it should. And it's arrogant of us to think that we can, quote unquote, run the church without seeking the agenda of the Lord of the church, without pausing to say, okay, Jesus, you said, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first of all, it's not our job. Right. And if you are building your church, that means you have an agenda. And so we're going to pause and ask you to please speak to us, your agenda. And I'm not going to assume that what I want, what I prefer, and what yes. feels capable and possible to me, that that's your agenda, right? right? Like, that's not going to be my discernment tool. Do I want to do it, and do I think I can pull it off? Well, it must be what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. But I do feel like, functionally, that's what happens, right? Um, and we ask the question, like, well, what will the congregation tolerate, or what can they stand? And those become our discerning questions instead of, you know, what what is the how is the gospel manifesting itself in our community? And if not, what are we going to do about that? Yeah. And and for us, I think there is a very, um, it's a very real, very powerful culture shift happening in the congregation. It's a shift away from pastor as center. Oh, didn't the pastor preach a good sermon? Oh, didn't the pastor do this well? Oh, didn't the pastor do that well? And listen, anytime someone wants to compliment or say yeah, something good about it, yes, thank Affirm you. I, I will <laughs> receive that. But more importantly, voices need to be saying, didn't we encounter the spirit in that? Mm-hmm. Didn't the Lord move in that or people are saying hear the Lord in that this is how both we and I am like 
am living out, you know, am living in relationship with the Holy Spirit in a way that is not necessarily got the label of my local congregation on it, right? I mean, that the local congregation is not the end. It's the means to the end, which is people coming alive in Christ. And we, we have to understand that, I think. And I think that's hard to do when just the culture in general and and when we very rarely define what a, I mean, I would say faithful, but most people would say successful church. Like we very rarely take the time to say like, well, what is that even what does that mean? And when we do, what it means is financially stable, doing impressive things in the community, admired in the community, large. And we say like, okay, but but do those things necessarily correlate with the values of the kingdom of God? Um, and so, I mean, there are lots of ways to be small and marginal that are not faithful, but there are lots of ways to be centered and large that are not faithful either. And so anyway, I yeah. Well, one last thing I'll say about that whole uh, this whole situation is that, um, you know, really this this hunger for prayer, this hunger, this desire, this deep heart hunger for an encounter with God for us comes out of the pain of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If we were, you know, tracking along just fine, if finances were perfect and we had the number of people we felt like we wanted to have and we were doing the programs we felt like we could. Right, no, we would, right. we would not go to the Lord. Yes, and, you know, yeah. we've had a number of people leave and, you know, we bless them and we trust that they will be a blessing to wherever they land in terms of, you know, congregations. But the loss or the, the um, not having certain people in our community and looking around and seeing empty pews has caused us to ask, okay, God, what next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for some people, the question has been, oh, is this the end? Is this the beginning of the end? Either way, people have been moved to pray. Right. And well, so makes I, me, I celebrate that. Yeah, it makes me think about, like, what's that place? And I can't remember. It was Paul was trying to go somewhere, and he couldn't. And yes, he, Was that, Acts. and then he ended up in Ma- Macedonia? Or was he trying to go to Macedonia, and he ended up somewhere? They had plans to go someplace, and, and he said, the Holy Spirit will let us, or the Holy Spirit blocked the way, and so they had to go um, another place, another route. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it just seems, you know, a lot of the, if you're, when you're serving a church in transition, or really just at any, I mean, everybody has this point in their life where you're, like, so clear that, like, okay, this is what this is the next thing, or this is what being faithful looks like. And you're like, I'm, I'm going to do all the things that I'm supposed to do to make this happen. And then the Lord blocks the way. Yeah. And what that does is, you know, brings you, you to a place. Well, and it brings you to a place of holy desperation yes. where you start really inquiring of the Lord and seeking about all of your assumptions. Like, does my kid have to go to college? Um, am I, is this covenant marriage faithful, right? Like, am I supposed to be working in this career or vocation? Like all of these things that are just unthinkable to question in our society, all of a sudden when the Lord blocks the way and when you're like, it's not that I've, you know, I've been lazy or I've been unfaithful or I've been bad or I haven't, like I've done all the things that are 
supposed to lead to this outcome and that outcome doesn't come, which I think is, you know, the place that a lot of believers and certainly a lot of pastors find themselves in. Like, I have done all the training. I've worked as hard as I could. I've visited all the visitees. I've preached all the sermons. I've read all the books. I've gone to all the conferences and still... I nearly killed myself doing it. Right. And still, I, you know, I've practically sacrificed my own family in order to be faithful mm. and still the church won't, like... It won't quote grow, then that place of desperation leads you to go like, okay, well, wait, Lord, what is, what's going on here? And that place of like real, that's holy desperation that opens you up sometimes to hear the thing that saves you, that reveals the idols that you thought were the actual living God. And I think, you know, that's really, I think it's important because we think when we hit those places where the Lord blocks our way, we think, okay, I've failed or I've done something wrong or this was stupid to try to seek this. And instead of realizing like, no, 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 like this is part of the journey. Sometimes you don't, you don't end up in the place where you really understandably, reasonably assumed you would end up. And that doesn't mean that you've been disqualified or rejected. It just means, you know, it is not a, you know, (laughs) to borrow another biblical metaphor, God doesn't often do like the most efficient straight line from point A to point B. Like look at the people of God in the wilderness. There's something about being in the wilderness where you just are formed and where the culture is shifted in ways that you don't think you need, but the Lord knows that you do. Um, so yeah, I think that's just really beautiful. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Well, I guess what is astonishing me um, it's kind of what isn't astonishing me and I've been sitting with. So last Sunday was the first Sunday that we were mask optional at the Grove. Um, and actually how we're phrasing it is we our signs on the doors say masks encouraged. And that was strategic um, to say that there are people who feel confident not wearing a mask and they will feel confident no matter what. But there are people who really want to wear their mask, but they also just feel a little hesitant about you know, are people going to look at me funny or say that I'm not, you know, so we wanted to send them a message to say like, hey, we, if you need to wear your mask, we trust you. We want to encourage you to do that. And anyway, but so this was the first time though, when people could um, come into worship and not wear a mask. Um, and so I'd say probably half the congregation was wearing a mask and half half the congregation was not, which was great. It was a, a real gift for the folks who were the musicians who are leading worship because it's just so difficult Mm. to be able to sing together if you can't see one another's mouths um so it's just a real gift for them um and it was communion sunday and so the way that we've been doing communion at the grove during this time when we were back in person but we were um masks required we thought like you can't go all the way through worship and then go to the end and then ask everybody to take their mask off and eat something and put i mean that's when there's going to be the most particles in the air like that just doesn't make that does not make scientific sense um so what we've been doing for these past six months more than six months is um we, ha- we always have communion at the end of service. It's the culmination of the service. And so people will like walk up. Well, I'll call the elders up to the table. The elders will take the elements. And the, the Grove Sanctuary is a really interesting conforma- uh, configuration. When the sanctuary was built, what is now the front of the church was the back. So there's this beautiful stained glass window that right now, if you watch our live stream or YouTube videos, you'll see that it is, that's what you see is the stained glass window. Um, 
which is tricky for our production people to deal with. And that was the back of the church. And so the entrance to the sanctuary is to the immediate right. So if you come into our church and you're a visitor, you are going to walk in at the front of the sanctuary, which is very uncomfortable for people. And I sit right there and I'm always jumping up being like, no, it's okay. Come on in. But, um, but so what it has meant during the pandemic is I'll invite the elders forward to the communion table, which is in the front of the sanctuary. They take the elements and then they go right out that front door and on the walkway. And then people come up the center aisle and they pass the communion table and they go out the front door and the elders serve them outside. Right. So they can take their masks off. They can have a communion. It is not a perfect solution. It is just what we did to keep everyone safe because um, we were saying like, if it's not safe for people to have their masks off in worship, then we're not going to ask them to take their masks off to receive the communion elements. I mean, that was just our, the, how we discerned it was most, most faithful to be together. But this Sunday, because we were mask optional, um, it was the first time that we could have communion in the sanctuary and really have communion together. Um, and it was the first time that I've served communion because what we had been doing during the workaround is the elders were serving the whole church and I was standing at the table and then, you know, people are worshiping with us on the live stream and we're asking them to have elements for themselves. And so when everybody goes through, then I invite them to eat and then I give the benediction for the folks who are on the live stream and then walk out the front door and give it to the folks on, on the outside who are still outside. Um, so it was the first time I had served communion to the congregation in all of that time. And I just, you know, um, I think that all of these years that we've been navigating the pandemic, I had sort of been looking forward to like, quote, that day, like that day when worship would finally feel normal. And you sort of think it's going to be when you're back in the sanctuary, but then you're wearing masks and you're having to do so many different workarounds that it really... I mean, it's wonderful, and also it's not normal. And then it sort of shifts to, like, well, the day that will feel normal will be the day when everyone takes their masks off and we can have communion. And, like, there's a one of my just favorite saints in the church, um, Kay Thomas, talks about how her favorite part of communion is after taking communion, she goes and sits down and just likes to watch all the other people coming up to the table and just what a beautiful thing it is. And like she has said, like, I really miss that because you don't get that when we do it this weird way that we had to do it. Um, so I just was thinking like, oh, this is going to be this amazing day that, and, um, and it was a beautiful day and, um, we got to go and have fellowship, you know, inside afterwards, just all of these things that are really, um, sweet and familiar. And I think what I was astonished by was like, I mean, it was great and it didn't, it wasn't this like overwhelming, like I'm going to weep with the joy and the relief of it thing. And I'm just sort of paying attention to like, why is that? And I'm like, cause you know, for all that it has been hard, um, I haven't missed church because I haven't missed church. Right. Like, um, like it hasn't been <laughs> like, Oh, that was, almost it. And now here it's the real deal, right? Like, I guess I just am astonished and grateful that it was not this big stumbling block yeah. that it felt like it should have been or had to have been at, at all. Like it really wasn't that different of an experience. It was a little more comfortable not to have to breathe through a mask. And it was certainly nice 
to be able to see people's faces. But I think I'm actually just so astonished and deeply encouraged by sort of on the other side of that and realizing there wasn't this big relief. And what that says to me is we were experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit all along, right? And that all those things that felt so, like such big hindrances, like they really weren't. I mean, they were there and we had to navigate them, but, but the goodness of life together as a community was full even in that time when there were so many visible hindrances. And, and honestly, even looking back at those times of isolation, and your story touches on this to me too, like the testimony of your congregation, like there was so much that we enjoyed that we had to fast from, right? But there was so much just deeply good and formative in that, in that season of refrain and restraint, which again, I mean, I hope it goes without saying is not in any way to belittle the real tragedies that people endured during the pandemic because people endured real tragedies and loss and those are not good. But the, but you know, those light and momentary afflictions, like I think on the other side, as we're beginning to step back into something that looks a little bit more like the great before, they really are being revealed as light and momentary afflictions that, that the invisible things that are eternal were ever present in that great disruption. And in some ways, even more deeply present because our awareness was tuned to them. So I think, yeah, I'm astonished that I wasn't astonished. Like I thought I would be just be this weeping mess and I, I wasn't. Do you think the same thing is true for people who worship via the live stream? Because that's one of the questions that's being asked in our community. Is it the same? One of the ways I'm putting it at Dorada Church is that we are now one church in two locations, one in person, the other online. And the online church is just as much church as in person. And, and there's some pushback. The question is, is it? Is it really? And so I'm, yeah. I'm wondering what you experienced with this n- new situation of masks optional and being back in the sanctuary for um, communion as, oh, we had it all along. I'm wondering if that's also true for people worshiping online. I, I suspect that in some ways... Yes, and yeah. in some ways maybe not, but I'm leaning more toward yes. I mean, I think I think there's more than one thing can be true. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't feel like it was the same because I, like, that was a really sad time for me. And one of the things that was really sad about it is I just get so much joy and happiness out of gathering with the embodied community on Sunday morning. So like, I just deeply missed that and it didn't feel like I was being formed by the body of Christ in that time when I was isolated. But I mean, I think that it's a good, you're talking about quarantine. I'm talking about quarantine when we, so, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to your question of the line, like is the live stream real worship, right? Like, does that, is that, does that count? And I would say, you know, now that I, again, on the other side of it, and I look back and I'm so grateful to be restored to in-person worship. And, I, and I'll and i say, hands down, 
one of the biggest gifts of being a pastor is that I don't have to do what most people have to do, which is decide on Sunday morning if they're going to go to worship. Like, mm. I don't have to do that because it's never a decision for me. And I don't say that as a moment of virtue. Like, people don't decide every morning if they're going to work, right? Or they certainly don't decide every morning if they're going to work when it's the day that they're doing the core thing about their job, right? So, I mean, I don't have to, you know, and that's just the gift of this life that we've been called to sure. is that that um, requirement is a place of huge freedom for me. Um, so I really just deeply grieved and missed that when it wasn't possible. Um, but looking back, I definitely see how I grew in the depth of my relationships, not just to Jesus, but also to other people who you know, the embodied way is a real way of connecting, but it forces you, like, I can remember sitting on this porch and doing, like, virtual small groups with a group of people, and we studied, um, you know, this Eugene Peterson group together and book together, and, like, that was a really beautiful community that still connects me to those people, and it was not embodied, and so, and there are people who are in our embodied community now who connected virtually, and, and we had no idea, like there's no way. In fact, I didn't, I absolutely did not believe that anybody outside of people that we already knew was connecting via these worship videos. Cause you know, you look at the Facebook metrics and it says you had 67, three second views. And you're like, all right, <laughs> nobody <laughs> is watching these. You're like no one is. And it just wasn't, it wasn't true. Right. Like real spiritual connection was happening in ways that our common sense says couldn't have happened. So I don't think that virtual live stream worship will ever replace um, embodied connecting, but I think there are lots of steps to embodied connecting. I think that virtual online worship will lead to embodied connecting. And I have friends in places who are really struggling to find a church, an in-person church, where they can belong. And so to say to people, like, well, virtual church doesn't count, like, that's awfully sad. Um, and I just think we, we, I mean, whatever, I, I don't, I'm not good at all of the technology, like, logistics. So it's just so tempting to be like, phew, like, let's get rid of that. We don't, but I mean, people really are looking for everything online and we need to take seriously that the Lord wants us to be there. And it is, you know, I think it's tempting to just be like, well, let's leave that to the mega churches. That's on them, not on us. But I think the kind of authentic human scaled sized congregations that we serve are exactly the ones who need to be in that virtual space to say, People don't want a slick production. People want a way to say, I can't gather with you on Sunday morning yet, but I could do a virtual small group. And that's a that's a baby step. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, so I just think we don't always know what's real. And I think normally what we label real are the things that have been personally meaningful to us or how the Lord has showed up in our lives in the past. And we assume that that's the only way God ever will do it. And um you know, that's sort of, um, that, that's problematic. So yeah. anyway. So what are you thinking about? Well, 
<laughs> okay, you said well and then big smile. This is going to be good. No, it's a <laughs> I mean, I only smile because I before we started making this podcast, I asked you if I should talk about this and then I and you asked me some clarifying questions and I started to tell you and you were like, "Oh no, we're talking about this." So I'm just like you asked this like innocent question like you have no idea what's coming, but you do. I know. Um so what I'm thinking about is a situation I've been watching in Charlotte, um, which is relevant because we are in this podcast talking about um, multi-ethnic churches, which means that we need to talk about racial justice and racial reconciliation and like not just theoretically, but also in an embodied way. Like, what does it look like um when the current structures of that were formed in a culture of white supremacy, like what does it actually look like when those are still wreaking influence? And, and what are the ways that we are formed and influenced by them even when we're not aware of it, right? So, um, so in the city of Charlotte recently, there's been a lot of attention um, to a dispute that is going on in a part of the city called Enderly Park, which is a, a part of the city that used to be one of the few places that um, black people were allowed to live in the city when red line, um, redlining was still enforced. So people lived in Enderly Park because that was one of the only places they could buy a house or start a business. Um, and now that so like just everything in the city of Charlotte is just becoming so expensive. These areas that used to be seen as undesirable, now people with resources mm -hmm. are looking at these areas and saying like, no, heck, this is great. It's like close to center city. This is like, and so gentrification is happening, right? Mm -hmm. And gentrification, I mean, and I remember seeing it this way when I grew up. So I'm not proud. I'm just being transparent. Like, you're like, oh, gentrification is when a crappy part of town starts and gets fixed up and becomes like a place you'd want to live. And what that means, I now see, is gentrification is what happens when a part of town that white people wouldn't invest in now becomes desirable to white people. And so they do invest in it. And what that means is the people and businesses who have been there because that was where they were allowed to be, not resourced to really usually be able to be competitive or full versions of what the people in, in living in that neighborhood would have wanted. You know, people just come in and people with resources go like, oh, well, no one's cared about this part of the city before. So now I'm going to come in mm -hmm. and I'm going to save it slash fix it. Mm -hmm. And just not even seeing just the dignity and value that it I mean, that's like colonizing, right? Like that's what's happening. It's coming to a place where there are inhabitants, but you don't see them as having value and agency and ownership in the same way that you do. Um, and in America, that breaks down on race lines, but but it's really about power and resourcing underneath that. So Enderly Park is a place where black Charlotteans have been allowed to live and have businesses and now people with greater resources who tend to be white are coming in and are like this valley this stuff is a steal let's you know let's start our businesses and build our homes here and you know anyway so a lot of people and businesses are being run out so there's a person in charlotte who i do not know personally his name is jim noble he is to my understanding a businessman and a pastor he has a church and several restaurants 
and um, he he has two of them in Enderley Park, um, and um, that and then there's another business that is owned by a black woman. It's called the Good Life at Enderley Park, and my understanding is it's an event planning business and a um, I don't know if it's a restaurant or a bar, but it's like open on the weekends and it's like really geared um, towards being like a like a a place designed for women. I think particularly black women, but for women in general, like just has the vibe that's kind of like girly and fun and stylish and it's really cool looking. Um, And all of these three businesses are very close to one another and they are all um, they have a parking lot that is like contingent um, on all of their properties. So the the conflict broke out when the woman who owns um, the Good Life at Enderley Park, who's a black woman, um, went public on social media and was very angry because signs went up in the parking lot between all their businesses saying this parking lot is exclusively for patrons of Noble Smokehouse and Bossy Beulahs and all others will be towed. And... So there's several issues with this, but one is like it tends to be the patrons of Jim Noble's businesses tend to be white and the patrons of The Good Life at Enderley Park tend to be black. And so what she observed happening was when people drive in and they're black, you know, their cars would be ticketed and towed. And she's mad because her lease gives her the right to have her customers park in that parking lot. So she goes public about that. The signs come down. Jim Noble then goes public and says, um, I'm, I really regret this because it turns out my lease gives me exclusive rights to this parking lot. But now I know that her lease gives her rights to the parking lot too. So the problem really is with the landlord who intentionally or unintentionally has given two tenants to irreconcilable understandings mm-hmm. of how the land will be used. Um, and and Jim Noble is saying this has nothing to do with race. It's just a landlord problem. And I regret that it has been, you know, gotten to this public scene. And she has said, look, this is what gentrification looks like. Somebody moves into the neighborhood and makes this assumption that they're the only one that has a right to be here. And in fact, that assumption is wrong. And also, I mean, not for nothing, but if you are not just a business owner, but a pastor whose public persona is very much identified with being a Christian, then the idea that the first thing you would do would be put up signs and have people coat toad instead of going to the person who's literally your neighbor and saying like hey we have a problem and then you discover in problem like in private like oh we do have a problem and it's not with each other it's with our landlord but that's not how it went down and I am a person who often makes assumptions that gets me in trouble so I don't like I get it like we just sometimes mess up so that is what it is and it's painful and it's hard and and I just feel like um the owner of the good life at Enderley park, like what she's saying about her experience as a black business owner in this community is not something that's comfortable to hear, but it is true. And we need to just acknowledge that. And the response of white people is not to be like, well, I'm not racist, but to go, huh? I, there are these bigger um, trends that are happening in our city and I am participating in them. And can I just try to be a little more thoughtful about that? But that's not even really what I want to talk about. Because where the story gets interesting, 
are not interesting. Where the story gets extra tragic, it's not interesting. Can I just add something real quick? Um, you know, one of the things that we're trained to do as pastors is to look at history, right? When we're interpreting the biblical text, we are trained to ask what was happening when this text was written? Mm -hmm. What's the context? Because that affects how we read it, how we understand it now. And so it seems to me that we should be able, especially a pastor, when there is conflict like this, understand that it doesn't come out of nowhere, that there is a history of racism that affects how different people see and understand um, a conflict. And so to say, wait, this is not about race, just speaks to a privilege of being able to ignore history. Well, and I would say, like, I I mean, to to be as, as generous as I can be, I want to say to Jim Noble, it's not about race. But to Robbie McNair, I think her last name, it is. And, and as a white person, my, I just feel like the faithful thing to do is not to say, to dismiss it and say, this has no place here, but to get curious about, huh, that's not what I understood as being a factor in this conflict, but it is what you understand. And you're the person I want to be reconciled with. So how can I understand your lived reality in a way that I don't? Yes. And for me, even more, when, when we say it's not about race, I think that's speaking to people's motivation so you're right for the white business owner it's not about race but when we talk about effect correct it is about race right and i think from the white business owner he's saying hey i didn't do this because the person who owned the business was black sure he's saying i would have done this if i mean let me just quote my people I would have done it if she was purple or orange i don't care i mean right like we just think like that wasn't my that wasn't consciously what I was thinking about. And and to, and that wasn't what she was saying. She was saying the way that we got here to this point where both you're in this neighborhood, you're given a lease that gives you exclusive to, access to something that I'm giving a lease that says I have to share, the way that we got to a point where you would assume that this was the way it should be, the way we got to a point where you would not feel like you wanted to come over and have a conversation with me. Like all of these things have been formed by the way that we have um, distributed power and resources along racial lines for generations in this country. And we just need to be aware of that. Um, But so the place where this gets really interesting, like sad and hard for me is after this, the one, the pastor um, of Freedom House Church, uh, Penny Maxwell, um, who I um, am connected with because I I wrote um, an article in the paper because after Freedom House publicly announced that they were going to disregard the county's mask mandates, and I tried to reach out to her privately and she didn't want to meet with me, and so I wrote a letter. In the, which the paper published, um, like just saying, you know, dear Pastor Penny, like this is, this is what I think is harmful about your your decisions and making them in the name of Christ, right? So, Pastor Penny, that Pastor Penny, who has a very large social media presence, um, and is a, is an influential person in our city, I mean, c- clearly, um, makes a 
video on her social media channels and releases it. And her video, she is talking to Ravi McNair, the owner of, I really hope I have her name like, the owner of The Good Life at Enderly Park, who she does not know. And is ranting as she drives along in her car about how um, Robbie didn't have the right to talk to or about Jim Noble in the way that she did. And how she, Robbie needs to understand, and this is how she needs to understand that Jim Noble has been the, has done more for the black community than anyone ever in Charlotte. And she then goes on to say, this is because you don't know, and this, I mean, it gets worse. You don't know because Jim Noble feeds the homeless and Jim Noble employs formerly incarcerated people. So clearly revealing that when she, Pastor Penny, thinks of the black community, she thinks of homeless people and people who have been incarcerated. So she says, Jim Noble has done more for the black community. And the proof is he serves these two groups of people who in Penny Maxwell's mind are black, are solely black, and also completely representative of all there is within the black community. And then she goes on to just repeatedly tone police this woman, Robbie McNair, about like, you can't talk this way and this wasn't racism. And when you do run into racism, nobody will believe you because you haven't blah, blah, blah. Like just like, patronizingly condescendingly lectures to her with this whole confidence and then tells the people on her social media following that they should go to the good life at Enderly Park and they should be generous but they should let the owner know that she stepped out of line oh no it gets worse you need to hear more so then Robbie uh, McNair is like on this video which is public and is angry because this woman has reprimanded her like she's a two-year-old and has put herself in a position of authority who gets to say this is how you're allowed to talk and this is what you're allowed to say and let me tell you about the black community in Charlotte and she's mad like a grown person would be mad and also mad at the idea that you're like riling all of your followers up and then sending them to my place of business and she says something like you wouldn't, I, and I don't know what she said because I haven't seen it, but said like, you wouldn't want me to send all the people who are on my side in this conflict to go like shout it out, shoot it up outside of your church. And then Pastor Penny files a complaint and has this woman arrested, has her arrested for communicating a threat. And so I'm just watching all of this go down. Like I saw the video and I was really deeply offended that anyone would, that any, any white person in general would feel that kind of superiority. Like that is the definition of feeling like you are superior because you're white, that you think you get to decide how another person is allowed to talk. Like that is white supremacy. You think that you have the authority to tell her how to talk and how to think and what her reality should be. So I was already just really disturbed by that. If any person did that, much less a person who says, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what that means is I get to go around and say what's respectable and tone police people. But then to come to find out that she actually got this woman arrested like handcuffed at her place of business and processed through the jails. And I don't even understand how in our system 
somebody didn't kick that out right to say to Penny Maxwell, hey, you can't go online, like, escalate a conflict, insert yourself into something that has nothing to do with you. And then when the person that you're attacking gets mad, then say, oh, I'm scared and I need to be protected because someone is threatening me. But that also is classically how if you if you read black leaders and racial justice advocates, they say, listen, this happens all the time. All the and time. this is just a clear example. But this happens all the time, particularly with white women, yep. is that they will go into a place, they will start a conflict, and then when someone is matches them energy for energy they will say this big scary black man or woman is attacking me and i'm going to call the police so you saw it in that famous case when the dog walker in central park right a black man comes and very calmly says hey you're not allowed to have your dog in this protected area it's a bird nesting area and she says I'm going to call the police and tell them you're threatening me right like white women know that in our culture all of our legal systems are built around this idea of protecting white women from the threat of black bodies. And so consciously and unconsciously, when white people feel uncomfortable around people of color, we think it's the police's job to protect us, even when there's, you know, there's no threat. So like, I... I mean, I suppose it's a matter of opinion, and I haven't seen the exchanges on the Facebook page, but I I just think it is egregious to me for, or I suppose I just want to point out that that to me is where that spirit of white supremacy is really operating in ways that we're not even aware of it, that someone would feel like, oh, it's my job to insert myself and speak into this conflict when it's just not. It has nothing to do with you. And, and I know someone could reasonably say, like, okay, Kate, but aren't you doing that right now? And I would just say, like, the difference for me is I am trying to interrogate whiteness, not white people, whiteness, just the culture that surrounds being white in this country. And I am trying to, as a white person, pay attention to what seems natural and how the systems work for me as a white person. And I, I'm trying to notice what privilege makes happen so that I can leverage my privilege for the kingdom of God and not to reinforce the systems that are passing away. So that is what I'm thinking of. Well, um, a couple of things come to mind. Number one is that the word demonic kept coming up in my mind um, while you were talking. I mean, that's just really... That's just really demonic. Um, also, it illustrates. Well, wait, can you say more about that? Because I think people well, might listen to you and say, are you saying that Pastor Penny is the devil? And no, you're not no, saying no, that. No, that's not what I mean. Um, when I, I say demonic, I mean, we talk about, um, we talk about, the, the Bible says that Satan is the prince and power of the air, that Satan blinds minds. Uh, distorts thinking and mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that white supremacy is is a lie mm -hmm. is a lie that is believed and it is um, well connected to what I was going to say next is that there's a misunderstanding of what racism is like 
I think most, many white people think that racism is about color hatred. Yeah. And since they do not hate anyone because of skin color, that they're not racist and they miss the operation of power and privilege and, 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 and bias. Mm -hmm. And that's where the enemy of our souls, the enemy of humanity can get in and twist and uh, wound and do violence. And that's what I see in that story. Um, and so, you know, Pastor Penny w might say, hey, I'm not racist, meaning I, I don't hate people because of skin color. That's probably true. But what I'm suggesting that she may be missing is how, how privilege and power work in this um, country and how she is able to manipulate that power in the way that you have just um, outlined in that uh, she's able to step in, escalate a situation, and then say, no, this black person is threatening me. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just clear from where I sit because I see it all the time. I have to guard my own life against that, uh, that spirit. I have to um, guard my, my child from that spirit. I, I th that's, that's what we were, um, that's, I, that, that's what we were dealing with uh, in the death of George Floyd. Like, I'm just wondering how long it's going to take us to be able to acknowledge this thing in our culture w without it, um, We've got to be able to talk about this without white people getting on the defensive because um, we're not talking about <laughs> individual white people. We're talking about a system. We're talking about power. We're talking about privilege uh, in a way that white people uh, consciously and unconsciously participate in and benefit from. Yeah, and I just think part of, I mean, as a white person, I, I think what I try to be really aware of is that, like, again, like, we <laughs> we are taught that, like, multicultural means there are other people who have cultures. And, like, we as white people, we don't think we have a culture mm -hmm. because we've been raised in a world that says, like, what we do and how we talk and how we eat and that's how we normal. speak, that's normal. And then other people have culture because they do things that are different. Those are the We're, ethnic people. Right, right. And so to say, like, no, white people, we have a culture as well. And so when Pastor Penny is telling um, the owner of the Good Life at Enderly Park, that's not the way you talk. What she's saying is, you didn't speak in the way that I was, ra you know, I was raised to speak, or you didn't, honestly, no, you didn't speak in the way that I was raised to expect you to speak, right? Because Pastor Penny Correct. doesn't think that it's wrong for her to go on Instagram and rant, right? Like, that's appropriate when she does it. But when the owner of Enderly Park goes on Instagram and rants about her experience, she says, oh, no, you've crossed a line. Right. So just being aware that like that expectation, like, why do I have this expectation that it's OK for me to be angry, but it's not OK for a black woman to be angry? And why do I have an expectation that this person 
needs to be deferential to me. Like, why do I have an expectation that she can't just say what she feels, but I can say what I feel, right? And so that's... And Pastor Penny may not be aware that there is a history in this country of black people, <laughs> by legal code, <laughs> enforceable by violence, <laughs> with violence, that black people were not allowed to speak in certain ways. I Even in the year, let's see, I was ordained in 98. I went to pastor my first church uh, in the eastern part of North Carolina in 98, small town. One of the things that got my attention, that there were older black people still who, when a white person crossed their path on the sidewalk, would avert their eyes, would not look a white person in the eyes when they had a conversation because there was a time in which that was met with violence. Mm -hmm. And so Pastor Penny may not be aware that when she says, when she responds in a certain way, you can't speak like that to a black woman, that it touches on that history that as a black person, I'm aware of because I have to be aware of that for my own survival and navigating the society. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, then you lay your faith on top of this. And I mean, this idea that like, okay, but you two are pastors. So isn't it true that we shouldn't be angry that like, if someone is wronged, they shouldn't be angry and we should be finding a different way. And I would just say like, look, a, it's really just remarkable that in her rant and anger and lecture, Pastor Penny is literally saying, don't you do what I'm doing right here, right? Like, I'm allowed to do this. You're not, right? So, and just to be aware of that bias, that we're quick to notice the anger of other people and to say that's not legitimate or you should find a better way. But when we're angry, we believe that it's righteous. We we really believe like, no, 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 this is this honors the Lord when I say I'm mad and I'm fed up and I'm not going to take it anymore. And so we we just need to be aware of how the enemy will trick us into seeing what might be a speck in someone else's eye, but not seeing the log in our own eye. And I just think like the reality is as white people, if we're aware of how we're influenced by these things, then we can most of the time, like not fall into these traps or when we do fall into these pits, we, we will have developed relationships with people where they will love and trust us enough to come in and say, and then we can just go, oh, let me, I'm sorry. And let me, let me make amends. Let me figure this out. But if we are, if we are so certain as Pastor Penny is that racism is in the past, it doesn't exist anymore. It's not what you're experiencing. Then you just don't even understand that you are, you are being the thing you are embodying the thing that you are denying, and that's what's so hard. Yes, and we can we can take this to another context. Uh, let, let's take it to um, um, men and women, right? Men, we are fed the lie that women are either sex objects or are mothers, right? And mm -hmm. you just have those two categories. And once you see that reality and you see it in you, then you, you catch yourself 
um, speaking in a way that affirms the lie, living in a way that affirms the lie. And you, as a man, once your eyes are open to that, to, to the sexism of, of not only our society but the entire world, then you, you begin to live this life of constant repentance um, because you see that even though you you don't consider yourself a misogynist, you don't hate women, you say, some of my best friends are women, right? <laughs> some of my right. colleagues are women. You, you, you don't hate, but you can see how you have been formed to deny the humanity of, to diminish the humanity of. And once you see it, you, you have a choice. You mm -hmm. can try to unsee it or you can lean into it realizing that uh, as a man your own humanity and the humanity of women is affected by how you live move and have being how you speak how you relate um and and that is important that is that is spiritual gospel work and it's the same right. with with race well and i would just say you know when i hear as i often hear so in that book that i just finished the um andre Henry book and uh, like a local pastor who I really admire, Ray McKinnon said this recently, like I hear black leaders and thinkers I admire say this all the time. They say, honestly, what is more problematic? Um, um, Ali Henney says this, what is, what, what is more problematic and painful in the day-to-day -day life, my day-to-day -day life as a black person in this country, it is not the people who are out and out racist. It is not the people who are in the KKK because I can just avoid them. It is the white allies who are so sure that they are, do not have any problems that they just aggressively invade my life, invade my work and, you know, and demand. And then if I say, Hey, this is how you're harming me. They attack me because they are, you know, they're so threatened by that. And I just, I don't want to believe that that's true. I just, I don't want to believe that that's true. But the way I know it is, is because in my own lived experience, I know that it is not the men. And I know plenty of them. It's not the men who are clear about saying, like, you need to cover your head and shut up and you're not allowed to preach and you are less than, like, it's not those guys yeah. that cause me trouble. It's just not. Like, yeah. I don't have to deal with them. I don't have, it is the men who are so sure that they are allies that they say and do things that cause great harm and great distress. And you just know that you cannot. You, you cannot tell them because if, if you can't say that, if you say a single thing, then you're going to have to deal with the original harm and they're going to attack you and they're going to go out of their way to just teach you not to do it. And the the worst experiences of um, just um, pain, you know, discounting and pain and um, I, I mean, resistance that I've had in the church have come from my male colleagues who, you know, that I work directly with who would just would say, you know, how dare you? Like, how dare you tell me that because I, I only select men to do this work that I have a problem with women in this line? Like, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? And I'm like, I mean, I know who I am. I know what it's like to work under your authority. I know the patterns that I see and experience all the time. I know what it's like when you stand up in front of a room of people and say, hey, 
if this male colleague hadn't been part of my church, I, you know, we would have folded and, and I'm sitting right there. And, you know, so like, I know what that's like. I know what my lived experience is, but because my lived experience contradicts your self image of who you are and where you are on your journey, you attack me. If I dare to tell you the truth about like, Hey, here's, here's what I really need if you're going to support me. And so because I've experienced that in my relationship with some men who very authentically and sincerely consider themselves to be, you know, supporters and mentors and fans of mine and women in general, but I see how that happens. And so since I see how it happens there, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see how it happens across the racial dynamic. It reminds too. me of that place um, in um, the New Testament where the disciples are, they're tracking along with Jesus and his ministry just fine. Jesus is doing miracles and um, they're receiving his teaching. And, um, you know, their, their identity, their self-identity is as his disciples, as his followers. And Jesus begins to say that he's going to the cross. Mm -hmm. He's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And Peter is like, no, 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 <laughs> that must not happen yeah, yeah, to yeah. you. Right. And so it's a it's a sincere response. But Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, you right? are not you are not as wise as you think you are. You yeah. are not as formed as you think you are. You are not as healed. Yeah. As you think you are. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with being where you are. There is not condemnation of Peter. No. Jesus calls him out for sure. But he's not condemned. No, and he and doesn't. that's what we're talking about. He isn't about. disqualified, right? Yes. It isn't like Jesus in that moment says, give me back those keys. You're no longer the rock on which I build our church. Yes. But he does tell him the truth that, like, hey, this thinking mm -hmm. is a stumbling block and you need to heal from it. And I think that's what we as white people need to be able to hear. And that's what men need to be able to hear. And that, you know, to some extent, I think it's what grownups need to be able to hear when it comes to children, right? Yeah. That like we talk to children. I just was reading an article about the other day and I think it's so true. Like we are so rude to kids. Like we're so rude. And we call it a, like we say like this is authority, but I mean, it's, it's rude. Like a child mm. is like whatever, like struggling to get up out of their chair. And we're like, you know what I mean, right like we just talk to a child in a way that we would never talk to an adult and we think it's okay because they're a child and so I'm just saying like we all have ways that we're blind and that's okay if we are open to being healed and getting sight but if we are determined to assert that we already see and that we don't need any healing then we're in big fat trouble. There's that place in the Gospel of John where you know Jesus heals the blind man, and the Pharisees ask him, "Are, are we saying are we're we blind? blind too?" <laughs> like, what are you saying? I'm like, well, so there's this thing in the Gospel of John called irony. <laughs> anyway, um, so we've talked for a long time. We need to stop talking. Okay. And it's Palm Sunday this Sunday. So I'm preaching about the donkey because it's all about the donkey. Donkey, donkey, donkey. And I am preaching about those stones with the potential to cry out and connecting it to this idea of being released. Mm -hmm. That um, one of the things I'm going to emphasize is, you know, that place where Jesus says, go into the village ahead of you. You'll find a donkey tied there. If anyone asks uh, anything about it, say the Lord needs it. And I usually ignore that place because I just think, okay, Jesus has all knowledge. and He tells them what's going to happen. But the first time I'm seeing something new, that these disciples are incredibly bold because they have heard from Jesus. 
And when you hear from God, you there, there is this sense of being released to do things, to be bold in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily be. And I'm assuming that because Jesus does not say, when you go into the village, you'll meet um, Miriam and Bill, and yeah. if anyone asks. So I'm assuming that the disciples don't even know the people mm-hmm. um, that uh, respond to them taking the donkey. And so it just highlights their boldness. Mm-hmm. I just am reading that text this week and thinking to my fellow pastors that Jesus has asked us to go and get a donkey, go, go and borrow an ass, don't be one. <laughs> we have misunderstood the assignment if we think that we, oh. anyway. Um, I, borrow one, don't be one. Yeah, I mean, because we really just, sometimes we are just so ugly to people when we think we're right, right? Yeah. And we just take joy in like obliterating them and humiliating them and whatever. And it's like, you know, we're not late night comedians. Like it's not our job to be funny. It's our job to preach the truth. And so the truth, I think sometimes will be divisive and sometimes will offend. But like if our, if our posture of our heart is this person, like, let me just whatever them, that that's a problem. Like mm-hmm. that's not... Um, anyway, so, but I just think for a huge, um, life giving place in that text is to really lean into why did Jesus go out of his way to come in riding on a donkey and what, what is the significance of that? And I mean, I, I think it's very clear and to the, the fact that most people in our church won't know I mean, they, they may know that Jesus came in on a donkey, but we haven't given them any kind of the why. the why of it and what that means. And so if we don't know what it means for Jesus, then we for sure don't know what it means for us. And I, I mean, I just think it's hugely, hugely significant. So this is all a way of saying, I'm not going to say right here what it is, but I <laughs> stay tuned <laughs> or, or, you know, come on by, <laughs> drop on by the live stream or the sanctuary on Sunday, but it's going to be good. And we're both really excited for Holy Week because if you don't love Holy Week, you need, why are you preaching? You need a, you need to, you got another calling, right? I mean, like it's a lot, it is a lot, but I mean, it's like, it's like an NFL coach being mad that they have to go to the Super Bowl, right? Like this, this is it. Like this is the thing. And it's not that, it's not that it's more important than any Sunday, but it's also like, this is huge. This is huge. This is like, Again, it highlights our why. It's the sacred, right? And so Mm -hmm. I'm just excited. Um, I'm excited. Like I, I'm. I can't wait. There's a lot that I have no idea how it's going to come together. I have no idea how it's going to come together. Easter back in the sanctuary in two years. Yes, and it's you know, it's harder. Like I don't want to act like this is a struggle this year. Like it's just a struggle. I anticipated that people would be tripping all over themselves to want to be a part of things. And I, I just think that people are carrying so many burdens right now um, that you know, it's really hard to know what a right expectation is for a congregation in this season. It's really hard. Um, and so I, I, it is not um, like I, this is very difficult to get all the moving pieces together this year. And I am definitely struggling. And so I don't want to, I want to be transparent about that. And also like, I mean, Jesus is risen no matter what. And so I think that's the big picture. It'd be like, all right, like what's the worst that can happen? We can have to 
cancel some things or some things can be lame, but the truth will not be impacted by that. So, um, yeah, so I'm excited. So thanks for listening this week. If you still are, you... <laughs> are our favorites. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Church, you can pop over to their website. It is Derida Church, Der, no, deridaprez.org, right? Yes, That's correct. And it's D-E-R-I-T-A, deridaprez.org. You can go to their YouTube channel. You can go to their podcast, which is on the Podbean website, um, and just catch up on messages and worship with them and worship with them in person at 1030 on Sundays. Um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. And you can go to our YouTube channel um, and you can worship with us in the sanctuary at 10 or on the live stream on Facebook. And you can go to our podcast, which is the Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or where else, Yolando? Anywhere. Anywhere. Anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, you can get it, we think. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>